Let's pray. Father, in the name of Yeshua, we thank you for your Ruach, your Holy Spirit that brings all things to remembrance, that wakes up our minds so that we're able to understand and to learn and to, to grow, not to be puffed up, Father, with knowledge, but to do this in love so we'll be those who are built up ourselves and that we'll be able to edify others, Father. We do not want to be puffed up, Lord. We want to walk in love in the things that we do. In Yeshua's name, amen. We've been working through the book of Hebrews, and we kind of finished it, but we didn't finish it, because I want to take a little bit more time with it today. There's some aspects of the book of Hebrews, especially the eighth chapter, that I, I want to spend a little bit more time on today. So I may get a little technical today. I hope that's not going to be too much for anybody. I try to say, Lord, how can I do this without being very technical? Because I don't like to be very technical, but I do like to be thorough in bringing out the truth of what God's Word says on these things. So we have reached a point, and I'm going to read it, starting at verse 7 on down to the end. For if that first had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, say the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that he says, a new, he made the first obsolete. Now, what is being coming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, I don't generally give titles to the message, but if you wanted to give a title today, is how new is new and how old is old? How new is new and how old is old? So this is where you're going to get a little technical. Why, why am I doing this? What's the background? I wrote it down, so I'm just going to read it to you. When we speak of the new covenant, old covenant, or more colloquially referred to as the Old Testament and New Testament, there is a common teaching in the larger body of the Messiah that the Old Testament is based on commandments and therefore full of bondage and has been replaced by the New Testament that is based on love and grace. Some even go as far to say that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and demanding, but the God of the New Testament is loving and kind, full of grace, and does not require keeping of commandments. Others reject this premise and seek to defend the goodness of God's commandments and, the, and in the process seek to show the continuity of God's commandments and therefore seek to define the New Testament as a renewal of the old. Terms like renewed or newer are insisted by these advocates. Some to saying that there is no change in the covenant at all. So here's why I want to get a little technical today, because we need to understand this, at least for you to have the understanding of what Ahavat has of it, because there's a lot going on, and with the, the web, internet expanding so quickly, where before it would have cost a lot of money for people to put their ideas in a book and get it out to people, anybody from the comfort of their bedroom can stand up a website and write down what they think the Bible says. And if they're very good and artistic, they can make their sight seem like, man, this is good stuff. And so people get a lot of their understanding today through surfing the web. I imagine a number of people in here surf the web from time to time to look up ideas and concepts and see what's going on. See, it's common. I use it too, and we all use it. The question is, though, is everything on the web good and true? Well, no, it's not. 
And so we still have to test, rightly divide the word of truth so that we will have the truth and not believe everything that we see out there, even if it's put out there in a very polished and well-designed way. So let's deal first with the idea of testament. This is a simple one to resolve. But it's, but it's hard because culturally we are influenced by the fact, especially in English Bibles, that we have this thing called the Old Testament and we have what I call the splash page that says the New Testament. So it gets in our minds that this idea of testament is a book. And so when people speak about being in the New Testament, they're talking about being in the new book versus the old book. Now, the old book is about this fat, and the new book is thin. But there are those who have a, a view that that's the right division of the Bible, that Yeshua came and shed his blood to create a new book. Because he said, this is the blood of the new Testament. So if we think the word testament is referring to books of the Bible, then we're saying he shed his blood to create a new book. Is that correct? I will submit to you that it's not correct. And it actually can lead people astray into ideas and beliefs that will not bring them to the truth of God's word, but away from God's word. How many of you ever been trying to encourage someone either through counseling or, or, or just in a discussion and, and trying to deal with something in a person's life and you happen to quote Deuteronomy and they say to you, well, that's the Old Testament. Can you find that for me in the New Testament? And if you can't find the exact verse in the New Testament, they will say, that's not binding upon me. How many of you ever run into that? You will run into that. People will make that argument because their view of their, of their religious expression is that the Old Testament was a burden. All those commandments and laws and the Jewish people couldn't keep them anyway and God knew that and so at that point in time he says, I'm done with that and not only the Old Testament, but I'm done with the Jewish people too. And now I'm going to form a New Testament with new commandments. And so now we're going to walk in a new set of commandments that are smaller set and it's easier. Is it really easier? You know, one of the things that Yeshua did as he talked, sometimes he says it is written. And when he says it is written, he's quoting the scripture. But there's another place where he says, you have heard it said. Now, sometimes people think when he says you have heard it said that he's contradicting uh, the scriptures itself. So you might hear things like, you have heard it said that if you commit adultery, you know, that, that, that's a sin for you to do that. He said, but I say unto you, if you lust in your heart after women, you are guilty of committing adultery. See, and they say, oh, see, he's changing the commandments. No, he didn't say it is written he says, you have heard it said. So he's looking at the philosophy of people who took the commandment and said, you've heard it said that they're drawing the line. They're like, look, you know, yeah, I've been lusting all over the place. And, and, uh, and today it may be expressed by, yeah, I'm on the, on the internet looking at porn and, and whatever. But, you know, I haven't actually done the thing. So I'm all right. Because it's just in my head and it's okay. I know my heart's full of lust and wickedness, but because I haven't committed the very act of it, I'm not guilty. But Yeshua comes along and says, if you're lusting your heart, that you're guilty. Now, which one brings a greater weight of uh, glory? If you, if you take this idea of Old Testament, New Testament, it is Yeshua who within his context gives a greater weight to, to the commandment by saying that even what you have in your heart, that you're guilty before him. So when people say, oh, the New Testament is easier. Really? It's just been brought to the place of lusting in your heart? Now, I'm going to say to you that that's not new. God always talked about a circumcised heart. God always was concerned of what's in the heart. 
But it's man who tries to bring it on the technicality of the surface and say, hey, I'm not guilty because I haven't really done that. But God judges the heart. So that's one thing you can say to people. But they're wrong and when they make the statement that they think it's all about a book. How do we get there? How do we get to the place of dividing the Bible into this thing that's saying New Testament, Old Testament, and that division? Well, it goes really way back to about the second century. There was a particular uh, bishop who was dealing with some uh, people who were actually arguing over what books should be in the Bible and not be in the Bible, and there were various groups that came about that did that. And so, in the second century, one of the church fathers, in trying to bring defense, he wrote an article where he put together the list of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he called that list the Old Covenant. That's what he called it. He said, hey, but he said, oh, here are all the books, and this is the Old Covenant. He entitled that. When you went from the Greek into Latin, which became very popular. The word used in Latin for covenant is the word testamentum, testament. Now, a testament did mean covenant. But as time went on, as we go from Latin to English, and because he grouped, this leader grouped these things together, they said, oh, here is the old covenant, all these books. And at the same time, there was a heretic by the name of Marian, or Marcion, and Marcion, who had come to believe that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the one of the New Testament. So he rejected the whole Hebrew scriptures totally and wanted to only have certain books of the Bible that he picked. So he picked a couple of Gospels, epistle here and there, and he put it together, and he said, this is the New Testament, and he entitled it that. The church leaders responded to this guy and said, no, 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 you're wrong. And so in order to counter him, because he, he wasn't a small thing in those days, he, he started a movement that was growing and was infecting the body of Messiah, and so they had to counter him, and so that's what caused the coming together, forming the canon of what today is called the New Testament. These were the leaders of the body, and they said, hey, this guy's wrong. It's the same God, and, and here are, hey, he left out this epistle and that epistle that we recognize, and so they put together, and they said in response to him, here is the New Testament, and then people began to, as they put these things together, they began to label them New Testament and Old Testament. So that's the history of it, but it's not that one of the prophets even one of the apostles sought to divide the Bible in that way. This is men dealing with things in history and they come up with this thing and, and the problem with that is that it leads to an understanding that's wrong. That the new covenant is simply a book. That's not the case at all. In fact, it covers over the fact that in the Hebrew writings, there are many covenants. That's not just one old covenant that it's called. There are many covenants. There's promises to Adam and Eve and Noah. I'm glad that thing hasn't been done away with because the next time there are black clouds in the sky and start raining, I'm gonna make sure I have an ark in the backyard because God might be deciding to destroy the whole earth with a flood again because if I believe that the Old Testament, which includes the story of Noah, is the old covenant and it's to be thrown and it's done away with, then hey, maybe he will flood the whole earth with a flood again, even though he said he wouldn't. Or the promises made to King David of a, a king who would sit on the throne forever, reigning, who would, we know is the one who would be the seed of David, who is eventually the Messiah, who would reign over the earth. I guess we could just throw that all out too. That promise to David is no longer important. Or the promises made to Israel and Judah, I guess they're not important. You can kick them to the side and they're not important at all. See, there are many covenants 
God has covenants with various nations. If you take the time with Egypt and others, things he said he's going to do and he promised he would do. And so when we take and we fall into this idea that there's this thing called the Old Testament, the fat part of the Bible, and we say that's been replaced with the New Testament, we just flush down the toilet a lot of God's promises. So we got to get an understanding that Yeshua wasn't saying, I'm coming to die to make a new book. That's not what he's saying. That's not the meaning. But we're stuck with it because I would probably guess that most of the people, if you have a, a paper Bible, I don't know if they're doing some, yeah, they even do it with the electronic ones, the digital ones, that if you turn to the front of the book, somewhere you're going to see something that says the Old Testament. Then you flip through three-fourths of the Bible and you're going to get a splash page that says the New Testament. And even if you understand the things that I'm talking about, it does impact you mentally that every day you see Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Because when people hear Old Testament, they think that's old, that's done away with, it's not important anymore because we go by the New Testament. So what's the right way to do this division? If the scriptures itself doesn't make that, but it's come from men, well, I think we find, you know, interesting, I, I think it's good to, to kind of follow after the Jewish people and their many understanding of these things because it says in Romans that the oracles of God were committed to the Jewish people. You know, what advantage is there to be a Jew, Paul says in Romans. He says, much in every way, but mainly the oracles, the scriptures that have been spoken, they was given to them and they were a keeper of that. So what was their division? Well, we know what that division is. We, we call it the Tanakh. The word Tanakh is an acronym. The first letter T in Tanakh means Torah, the law. The letter N is Nevi'im, which means the prophetic books. And the last part points to a K, which is Ketavim, which is the Psalms or the wisdom books. So in a Jewish mindset, the division of these three Bibles, three, three manuscripts that they viewed as one is called the Tanakh. And inside of that Tanakh, there are many, many covenants, not just one. Many covenants are in there. Now, it's always good to see what Yeshua says. And Yeshua says in Luke, in the last chapter of Luke, chapter 24, verse 44, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in, one, the law of Moses, two, the prophets, and three, the Psalms concerning me. That was Yeshua's understanding of what the Christian world calls the Old Testament he basically is calling it the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's what is really what we're talking about. So some of us will say the Hebrew scriptures. Some of us will say um, the Tanakh as a good way, or the law, or the prophets, or the wisdom books, or the Psalms. And that's how it's referred to. And notice, it doesn't get into the idea that, there's, that that whole fat part of the book is entirely one old covenant, one old testament but brings out that his law and the Psalms and the prophets. So Yeshua brings out the same thing that Judaism teaches to this day. In many ways, I'm saddened that in the body of Messiah that they decided to make that splash page and make that division of Scripture because psychologically it leads people to think a certain way that actually leads them away from the glory of what God has done with the new covenant, not the new book. Okay. So I want you to get that. That's the first technical part. Does that make sense? Anybody on board with that? So now we need to move to the thing of saying, okay, well, what do we mean by testament? If it doesn't mean book, what does it mean? What is the idea of a testament? Well, in our culture, we're used to the concept of last will and testament. 
something people put together and write down that after they die, saying, here are my wishes. You know, Aunt, Aunt Susie gets my, my bicycle and, and Timothy gets my car and, and the house is to be sold and the money shared with different people. And that's what most people think about when they think of last will and testament. That is one idea of the word testament. We're going to see later in weeks following, when we really look at this, this is not the way it was being presented in the book of Hebrews. Even though we're going to find in Hebrews 10 a whole idea of testament that seems like last will and testament, but that's not what the scriptures are teaching. The other meaning of the word that's used for testament in the Greek is covenant, a covenant agreement, a contract, a compact that people have come together. We find this use. Let's just quickly walk through some. Matthew 26, 22, or 28. uh, For this is my blood of the new testament, many translations would say. But understanding that the Greek word means covenant, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He also says that in Mark 14, 24 and Luke twenty two twenty, 20. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, Paul, reflecting back on what Yeshua did, says, this cup is the, is the new covenant, testament in my blood. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also has made us able ministers of the new covenant, not the new book, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. God always wants it by the spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away, and the reading of the old covenant. Now I said, oh, what's this old covenant? He introduces that. We're going to find out. But so much more, Hebrews 7.22, so much more was Yeshua made a surety of a better covenant. And this cause, he is the mediator, Hebrews 9.15, of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. Now, there's another word that throughout most, and I'm using the KJV here, that translate the same Greek word, and they go ahead and translate it as covenant instead of testament. All the ones I've read there in the KJV say testament, but it's the Greek word that means covenant. But here's the same KJV in other places where it translated covenant, but it's the same Greek word. So let's just read some of those. Luke 1, 72, Zechariah says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our fathers, Abraham. So now he... When he talks about a covenant, he's talking about the promise made to Abraham. That's the covenant he's talking about. Acts 3.25, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. He also goes back to Abraham in this case. Acts 7.8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised them the eighth day. The covenant of circumcision, a covenant. Romans 9, 4, it says, who are Israelites to who pertain the adoption, the glory, and the covenants. Notice that it's plural. Not just one. But the Israel, there are many covenants. One's to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, the one that came through Moses. And we can go on and on. Romans eleven twenty seven. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Not a, Hebrews 8, 9. Not according to the covenant, they continue not in my covenant. Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant. And Hebrews 12, 24. And to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant. I find it interesting for the KJV that Hebrews 12, 24 says Yeshua is the mediator of the new covenant. But then earlier, it uses the word testament, Hebrews 9, 15. And this cause, he is the mediator of the new testament. But it's the same Greek word used in both. And so the idea of the word testament 
is a covenant. Okay? A covenant. So let's summarize some points. Point one, it's not a book. The Bible is made up of many covenants. The Greek word means a covenant. We saw in Hebrews 12, 24, and Hebrews 9, 15, the one in the KJV is translated testament, the other one is translated covenant, but it's the same Greek word. The other thing that's very important is to realize that the words in Hebrews that we're reading in chapter eight are a quote from the Tanakh, from prophet Jeremiah. And that's important to know because now we say, oh, this is a quote. Now we can see what the Hebrew word is underneath to really get a sense of the meaning of it. And so when we read the Hebrew, the, the word that the Greek is based on is the word barit, which means to cut, to cut a covenant. And it had the idea of the ancient practice of taking an animal and cutting it into two pieces, and the people who are going to enter into the covenant would walk between the two pieces of the animal. And by doing so, they pledged themselves to one another. And they had agreements to that. We see this in Genesis 15, 9 to 18 with Abraham. God comes to Abraham. You can read this in Genesis 15. And he takes them. And Abraham takes some animals. And he cuts them in half and separates them. And then, you know, he tries to keep the birds that keep trying to eat, eat up these sacrifices, these victims. And then eventually a deep sleep falls on him. And then God comes in the appearance of a smoking torch. And the torch passes between the pieces. That God is entering into covenant, barit, to cut the covenant with Abraham. And one of the concepts that went along with this cutting of the covenant is that if you broke the covenant, that what has happened to those animals would happen to you, that you would be killed and put to death. Now, imagine Abraham's excitement to find that God was willing to go through the practice of the day, to go through the, between the pieces of the animal and say, if I don't keep this, may I die? Okay, God, you, you can't die. You're the creator. You're the maker of all things. You are eternal. You are forever. Abraham understood this now in a way like, okay, this is a good deal. So the idea of the word covenant or testament used in Scripture is to make covenant, is to cut a covenant with God. And so when we read in scriptures, in the book of Hebrews, that first starting at verse six, but now he has attained a more excellent ministry and as much as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first and the context would demand covenant. And what you need to know for those who have the Greek interlinear there, the word covenant is not in the seventh verse. Probably in your English translation it is. And if it is, is, if you have a good study Bible, it will be italicized. The reason why it's italicized is to let you know that the Greek underneath doesn't have that word there. And the translator is saying in the context, to make it more readable in English, we understand that this is talking about covenant. And it makes sense because that is the flow. He's talking about a better covenant established on better promise. Now, if that first had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. You say, well, he's talking about a better covenant. So he has to still be talking about the concept of covenant. And he breaks it down for us because finding fault with them, not with the covenant... He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And here he's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the context of first and second is about covenant, not about just books. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. See, when he says I'll make a new covenant, when he just read that part, you're like, well, hold it. Which one is changing here then? Is he saying he's doing away with the Abrahamic covenant? No, he passed through the pieces on that one. That is forever. That never can be changed. Is he talking about which covenant? Is he going back to the one with Noah? Is he like rescinding that and saying, nope, 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 I'm going to make a new one now? No, he tells us exactly which one he's referring to. When I took them by the hand out of Egypt. Which covenant is that? What? Speak up. The Mosaic covenant. He's not talking about the Davidic covenant. He's not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. He's talking about the covenant that he made through Moses with the people. He said, this is the one that, that's, going to, that's going to be a change. There's going to be, this is the one I consider old. When I took them out, why am I making some adjustments with this thing? Because they broke it. Actually, they broke it many times. So he says he's going to make a new covenant with them. Now, as I said, how new is new? How old is old? It's very important. It says, and that he says anew, he has made the first old. That's verse 13. And he says a new the word covenant's not there, but the context demands that he's talking about the covenant. So he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now that's what we want to focus on. This is very important. It's technical, but it's very important. So stir yourself awake so you can receive this and understand it. We all got here to this place through various means and methods. Some of us grew up like my son in the Messianic Judaism. That's all he's known. He was raised in the Messianic Jewish movement. That's the life he's had from the time before he, even was, a, before he was even a gleam in my eye. <laughs> we were already there and then he came along later and that's what he grew up in. All my children grew up that way. Some of you have been in it for a very long time. I remember when Lawrence was tiny, Yes, Lawrence used to be like, yeah, maybe about here, maybe. Isn't that amazing? I've known him that long, and now he has little ones that long. Praise the Lord. Mary, I've known a very long time. And we have our stories. How did we get here? How did we get into the Messianic movement? Some of you are here today because you went a Hebrew roots type of thing, or you went on the web and you just looked at Hebrew roots and said, hold it, oh, my Hebrew roots. And you got excited about your Hebrew roots and it led you to a Messianic community. Our journeys are different, but here we are. And it's very important that we're able to explain to others what we believe. And I would love to say that in the Messianic community, and this is not even extending to the Hebrew roots movement, which is, which is viewed differently than the Messianic Jewish movement. We, those of us who've been part of the Messianic Jewish movement see the Hebrew roots movement as a, something other, though there are similarities, we see it as something other. And we do have some concerns for some of the things that come out of it. One of the biggest concerns we have out of it a lot of times is that some Hebrew roots groups become very strongly replacement theology, feel the Jewish people have been set aside, and now they are the new keepers of that, and God is done with the Jewish people, and they're excited about Hebrew roots, and they embrace it, but they have no regard for Israel whatsoever. And to me, that goes against the heart of God. God didn't start a new tree called the Hebrew Roots Movement. He continued with his Jewish people and he invited the Gentiles who embraced Yeshua to be grafted into that remnant of Jewish believers that is a continuation of God's promise all along the way. It's not a separate tree called the Hebrew Roots Tree. It's one tree. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you're Jewish, you rightfully belong in the tree. It was cultivated and made just for you. If you're not Jewish, through faith in Yeshua, you get grafted into that tree and partake of the fatness of that tree. But God didn't create a separate tree called the Hebrew roots tree. He's continued with his people all along the way. 
the household of Israel and the household of Judah. In fact, we see that it says right there that I will make a new covenant with D.C. Oh, no? Oh, with the Chinese. No? With the continent of Africa. No? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant is made with the very people that it was made with called the Mosaic Covenant. It's a continuation. The same people he's committing to. And that's important to remember. So we all get here by different places. And so there's terminology that we have to understand. And so since we know there's this larger Christian world that sometimes has a view that the new Testament, the new covenant, is one that kicks the three-fourths of the Bible away, throws Torah away, throws the commandments away, and now because we've come to Yeshua, now God is a loving God who is going to show grace and mercy where before he was a mean God who did mean things, but now we're going to get rid of that, and then we're going to move into the new thing with the new God, and so we have this new covenant, and what we mean by that is so new that it has nothing to do at all with what came before. That the Torah has been kicked to the side, it's gone. It's a whole new thing. Now, that is one of the things that the Hebrew Roots movement got a hold of. It's a hold on now. You can't take the root out. You can't go digging the root out. It, the root is there. You didn't plant a new tree. And so they're right on and right on that. But sometimes in a zeal to counter those who would say that Torah is done away with and has no value for the follower of Yeshua, people don't play fair with Scripture and seek to bolster their arguments with things that are simply not true. One of those things is that you'll see a lot of people talk, and this is not only in the Hebrew Roots movement, but you see it in Messianic Judaism also. Not everywhere where there's an emphasis, oh no, the proper understanding is, is that it's a renewed covenant. It's not a new covenant, it's a renewed covenant. And the reason why they're saying that, they're trying to defend the fact that Torah is still involved. And so they're trying to bolster that argument, but in doing so, they violate even the understanding of the Hebrew to bring that about. And people run with it. People have run with this. Oh no, it's a renewed covenant. See, because it makes sense in the head. Since this is a renewed covenant, it's with the same people and it's with the same law and it's with the same commandments. And some will even go to the extreme of saying that all Yeshua did in his death is to let the same Mosaic covenant with all of its sacrifices and animals and everything stay what it was before. Now, I have a problem with that because I think that belittles what Yeshua accomplished. See, it's not, this is not the first time that the children of Israel broke the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant and committed a lot of sins. I mean, the temple was destroyed once before. The northern kingdom was taken. The southern kingdom was taken. Off into captivity, into Babylon. Read the book of Daniel. You can read all about that. And then God brought them back. Read the book of Ezra. And they found the scrolls. And at that point, they simply continued with the Mosaic Covenant. There was no talk of a new covenant. They just simply got back. We've been in captivity for all these years. And now we're free and we're back in the land. And we found the scrolls. We opened them up. We started to read them. Everybody's weeping as we read them all day long. And we seek to reestablish fully what was there before. We try to reestablish the, the sacrificial system. We're looking at the goats and the lambs and all the things being restored just like it was before. That is a renewed covenant. That's taking what was before and say, hey, we're just going to renew it. You broke it, but we're going to pick up where we left off. But 
what happened with Yeshua is way more weighty than that. Because if we're back to the Mosaic Covenant, and that's all that Yeshua accomplished, why are we sitting here? When Passover comes, why do we have a Seder here? Why aren't we writing to Israel and saying, y'all need to reestablish the temple sacrifices? Because we need to bring a Passover lamb to pay for our sins. Because we have renewed the Mosaic Covenant. We got to get the Levites and the priests back involved. And by the way, you Gentiles, you once again are far off. And you're not brought near. You're at a distance again. And by the way, you only have the Levitical priesthood. And all that stuff about Melchizedek is irrelevant. Because, hey, we're in the Mosaic and it's all about, about Levi and all those things. And we, we should restructure. We should just sell our homes, move to Israel, and pray that they build the temple and we can get our sins atoned for, according to the Mosaic, the first covenant. The blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on the people. But when Jeremiah spoke, as one who's about to go off into captivity, that God's given him revelation that Israel's going to go off into captivity, it's at that point that God speaks to him and says, oh, by the way, Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant. And somebody said, no, that's a renewed covenant. And, it, and the reason why they try to argue that, they say, well, it's like the word, it's, 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 it's like, like the word that's used for a new moon. You know, you have a new moon. God doesn't create a new moon every, at the beginning of every month. It's, it's a renewed moon, is the argument. The problem is, they're not being true to the Hebrew and how it's used. When we look at Jeremiah, the word for, that's used when it says, I will make a new covenant, the word new, the Hebrew, is kadash. That's why we call it but the root word is chadash. What does that word mean? Some say, oh, it means renewed. Well, no, not in Jeremiah, it doesn't. In fact, I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures concerning how kadash is used. And you tell me whether it means renewed or not. Exodus 1.18. Then there arose up a new kadash king over Egypt. Renewed king? Do you think it means renewed king or brand new? Something fresh. Judges 16, 11. Bind me fast. This is Samuel. Bind, I mean, this is uh, Samson. Bind me fast with new root, root ropes that were never used before, never occupied. Renewed root ropes? Hey, go get some renewed ropes, ones that have been refurbished. Bind me with that. No, no, no. The context is clear that the word kadash, kadash means brand new. Deuteronomy 25, what man is there that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Has built a renewed house? Does it mean renewed? I don't think so. I think it's very clear that it means a new house and has not dedicated it. I think it's kind of clear. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrifice unto devils, not to gods, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods. Renew God, they renewed the gods that were before, or ones they never heard of. They were new, fresh, new. 1 Samuel 6, 7, then therefore make a new cart and put the Torah on to carry it. A new cart, a renewed cart? Go find one of your old rundown ones and just kind of renew it and put the Torah on that. No, a new cart. Fresh, brand new. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. A renewed thing? A new thing, fresh. Never done before. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it. Ecclesiastes 1, 9. The thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Renewed thing? I don't think so. I think it's very clear, the meaning. 
Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give a new heart also I will give to you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. It seems to me there's something that he said, well, I'm, I'm gonna take your old heart and kind of shine it up and keep it in there. No, I'm gonna take out the stony heart and I'm putting a new one in there. Fresh, brand new is what the word chadash means. When people say that it means renewed, they're playing a trick with you and not bringing out the full thing of what the Hebrew is saying. See, there's another word that is also chadash. This is where the trouble comes. But it's not an adjective. All the words I use here are adjectives. But the same word, Hebrew has a root-worded language. You have a root word and then you break it off and depending on the text, you... You do all these things to it. The English majors in here know what I'm talking about. The rest of us going, what is he talking about? A root word, I don't get it. Don't worry about it. You take one root word and you break it out, conjugate it, depending on the text. And you can use it as an adjective, you can use it as a verb. And, and when you do that, it can carry a different understanding and meaning than when it's used in another way. So there's another word, according, you know, Strong's Concordance breaks these into two different words, even though they're spelled the same. It is the context that determines the meaning. Kadash that we talked about before, according to um, Strong's Concordance, is an adjective, and it's, he references by Hebrew 2319 for those who like to use a concordance. But the other word that's kadash he referenced different as 2318 because it's used as a verb and it's a root. And as a root, it means to rebuild, to renew, to repair. So in places like 1 Samuel eleven fourteen, Samuel said, come and let us go up to Gagal and renew the kingdom there. It's restoring something that was back. Second Chronicles 15, 8. Asa said he put away the idols, and they renewed the altar of the Lord. He didn't build a brand new one. He just removed the idols and restored it. Second Chronicles 24, 4, and it came to pass after this that Joash was minded, reminded to repair, that's the word that's used there, renew the house of the Lord. Psalm 51, 10, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Isaiah 61, 4, and they shall repair the waste cities. Lamentations 5, 21. We say this every Shabbat. Turn us, Lord, unto you, and we will return. Renew our days as of old. Well, that's the use of the word as a verb, and in that meaning, it carries the idea of being renewed. When people play the game and say, well, the word kodash, Kodesh, which is a new moon. See, it's new. That has a related word. Actually, it doesn't. Scholars say, no, no, they don't go to the same. So you, you, you're taking this concept of renewing and applying it to the new covenant is you're bringing it out of its context to try to make a point that you're trying to defend that Torah is still active. But see, you don't have to do that. You don't have to lead people astray with that kind of thinking to see that Torah is still alive and active in the new covenant. One last thing that helps us to understand the use of Kadash in Jeremiah. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Lo, what does lo mean? Not, no, lo, not like the covenant that I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. Lo, not like. There's something different about this new covenant, something God has never done before. The reason why he's doing this new covenant is because his people kept breaking the Mosaic one. They kept falling short of God's expectation. And if God didn't do something, because it says here, there was no problem with the Mosaic covenant. He found fault with them, not it. We'll say covenant was fine, but he found fault with them. Well, if he put them back in the same old covenant, 
then they'll just keep doing the same old thing. What's that thing they say about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of insanity? Something's got to break. Something's got to change. You know, we've tried this over and over again, and it led to our temple being destroyed the first time. We tried it a second time, and it leads again to us being separated from God. Something's got to change. And so God says, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to make a new covenant, kadash, kadash, which means a fresh new covenant, not like the one I made with them out of, when I brought them out of Egypt. But then he tells us the content of this new covenant. In this new covenant, and we're all waiting on the edge of our seat to see what he's going to say. And I'm like, what about Torah? Oh, Torah. Well, in the new covenant, I'm going to take Torah and I'm going to put it inside your heart. I'm going to put it in your mind. See, before it was put on stones, external to you. But now I'm going to put it in you. See, so you don't have to mess around with trying to say a renewed covenant, which is what the scriptures do not say, to defend the fact that Torah is within the context of this new covenant. It is a new covenant. I am happy it is a new covenant because one of the things that come with the new covenant is God putting the Torah inside of me. He didn't say that before. Put it on our tablets. Put it in an ark. That's great. Just like today, people put it on the walls in the houses. It's pretty. Nice frame, Ten Commandments, there we are. But that's not where God wants it ultimately. He wants it here. And in the New Covenant, that's his promise. That he will put it in side of you. So it is a new, fresh brand, something God has not done before. But it's not void of Torah because the very definition of describing this new covenant has Torah right at the beginning of it. I will put my Torah inside of you. I will put it in your heart. Now, does that make sense? Are we following with that? He goes on and says in Hebrews 8, and that he says a new covenant, a new, <coughs> he has made the first obsolete or old. Now what is becoming obsolete or old and growing old, waxing old, is ready, it's near to vanishing away. And this becomes the place of argument because those who believe there's an Old Testament, New Testament, this is a proof text for them to say God has done away with all those commandments before. But that's not what it says because it's not talking about commandments at all. It's talking about the covenant. And he said, with the coming of the new covenant, let me just ask you a simple question. Everybody here, do you think that in the age to come, when the fullness of God and his kingdom breaks into this world, that you will need to offer up an animal for a burnt sacrifice? Do you think that's what it will be with transformed bodies made in the image of Yeshua that you're spending your day, well, I got to go find a lamb again, slice, shedding blood. Do you think that's there? When we've been told that those things are shadow and type of things to come of the reality. If we have a complete renewed covenant, some people say, then we're stuck with the animal sacrifices. But since we're not walking in the mosaic, we're walking in the new covenant spoken by God through Jeremiah to the house of Israel and Judah that includes Torah, but by the Holy Spirit empowers you to walk in his ways. And it doesn't require the animal sacrifices for sin because we have a different priesthood. The order of Melchizedek, which is preached, then comes before the Mosaic and is promised again later in the Psalms that God's going to do this. 
so that we're putting our focus there, oh wow, God, you're providing the heavenly priesthood. Now we have understanding. Now we know what you meant when you told Moses, make it like the pattern I showed you in the mountain. Didn't understand what that meant at the time. But now we have a fuller understanding. Oh, the pattern. He, he got to see the heavenly one, and this is a working model. Now the fullness and reality is found in Yeshua. So at Ahavat, we do absolutely believe that we are in the new covenant, and we don't view ourselves as being in the Mosaic covenant. But we know that the new covenant includes Torah, just like the Mosaic covenant did. See, the framework, the administration under Moses contained Torah. The administration of the priesthood and everything that comes with Yeshua of the new covenant contains Torah. But the new is better than the old because the new comes with a priest who has not sinned, who is able to make intercession for you forever who is working in you a new heart, a new life, a new everything. All things have been made new. He is doing that in a new covenant context. We really strip away the power of God when we try to go and say, oh, no, 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 we're under the mosaic. I know I'm not under the mosaic because I'm not depending upon the Levitical priesthood for my atonement. I'm under the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's the priesthood I'm looking for, where Yeshua is the high priest once and for all. But I know that Torah is included. So the writer, as he's trying to encourage people, and you know, there's a debate among scholars, was this written after the second destruction of temple and, or before, some will say after, some before. Uh, those who think more like the way I'm presenting things to you would say, you know, this was written before, that these things were happening and operating. And he's saying, look, in that he says a new, and the context demands covenant. He has made the first obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to pass away. Now, what is becoming old and growing old is near to vanishing away. That this transition from the old to the new is taking place, and with that comes the change of the priesthood as well. And the fullness of that. So there's a period of time where they kind of cross each other. And now he's encouraging, no, no, no. This thing is, going, is, is moving on. This shadow, this type is moving on for the reality. But as I said many times to you before, is that if you looked at my shadow, put a light on me, there's a shadow. You could see my movements. You could get a sense, depending on how that light is situated, you get a sense of my size, my movements, and all of those things, right? But if you focus on living with the shadow, you miss the glory of the substance. So we don't focus on living in the shadow because the shadow points us to the reality which is found in Messiah Yeshua and the fullness of the sacrificial system and being made right and holy, we understand is fulfilled in Yeshua. He is the one that says the law, the Psalms, and the prophets speak of me. And so we find Yeshua throughout the Tanakh. We see him in everything. We see him in every sacrifice. We see him in the promises that God has made. We see him in the Davidic priesthood. We see him in the seed of Abraham that's going to bring life because we're trying to grab onto the substance that's found in Yeshua. This is the thing that puts us in a place that as we go to the largest Jewish community, we're not trying to convince them. And this is what sometimes in our movement people are doing. Oh, we can do Torah better than you can. Come on over with us to get the same thing that you got already. Well, why come over to us? Why come to a messianic community if we're just going to give them already what they have? No, we're saying, no, come over because the covenant is better. Come over because this has been promised to you through Jeremiah that God has offered this new covenant and you're missing out on your covenant. 
Come, embrace Yeshua. He's the one that made the atonement. You have blood of bulls and goats, but you don't even have that anymore. You haven't had blood of bulls and goats for 1,800 years. 1,800 years, no blood of bulls and goats for your atonement. And you're happy with that? 1,800 years of having a high priest to go into the most holy place to take your sins and make atonement for you? And you can be happy with that? I couldn't be happy with that. That'd be a miserable state to be in. And so we say, look, God has provided an atonement for you. He's provided an eternal atonement a high priest who is interceding for you even today. Accept the sacrifice of the Lord. Accept the blood of Yeshua that speaks of greater things than the blood of bulls and goats. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the blood of Yeshua cleanses you, makes you holy, Changes you from the inside out. God has forgiveness for the house of Israel and Judah. And it's found in the covenant through Yeshua. So it is a new covenant. Built on better promises. But not void of Torah. Not void of Torah. We get to say like the psalmist says. And and that is, we delight in your law. Oh, how we delight in your Torah. We don't see the Torah as a bondage. We see it as the wisdom of God. We see it as life. Because we know that in the new covenant, that's what God's putting inside of us. And we know that by his spirit, he promised he will cause us to walk in his ways. And his ways are not against Torah. Because Torah expressed his ways. Does that make sense? Let's all stand up. Worship team can return. I said a little technical today, but it's important that we get this. It's important that we understand that we have a new covenant, a new one built on better promises by the very spirit of Yeshua, the very life of Yeshua, the blood shed to make us whole and righteous, that God empowers us from the inside by his grace to walk in his ways. Oh, what a great covenant it is. I would not trade that for the Mosaic covenant at all. It's through the new covenant that those who are non-Jews have been brought near who were once were afar off That's not the language that was spoken in the Mosaic. It was there that God had a place for those outside. But the fullness of that is expressed in the new covenant through the sacrifice of Yeshua. When Yeshua was sacrificed, it was a game changer. Things took on a new direction and understanding and meaning. The fullness of what God had been saying all along had taken flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among his people. The reality had entered into this world. New covenant believers, whether Jew or Gentile, more than anyone else on the earth who's seeking to try to follow God, should be able to live a life that reflects the power of God inside us. You should be able to say to the Unbeliever, come follow me as I follow the Messiah. You want to know what God is like? Hang out with me sometime. You don't have to say like some people, well, come to my church and you can find out about God. Well, yeah, but they shouldn't have to come here. When when they come here, by that time, they should have already met God through you. You should just be bringing people here because, hey, look, you got to have a community to be a part of. And mine is just as good as any. But you don't have to wait like, hey, I got to get this guy to, the, to one of the elders so he can get saved. I thought you had the same Holy Spirit living in you. I thought you were in the new covenant. That same life lives in you. 
I'm not saying you can't bring people here. You bring somebody here, we'll sit down, we'll talk with them. I'm just simply saying that most of the time you're bringing somebody here, it's like, hey, pastor, I just brought in these five new believers today. Bam. Where'd you do that? I was just walking around in my neighborhood. Got into some conversation, been praying for that one and this one and that one around the corner. And God has brought the, brought the fruit forth, forth now and they have come to faith and they need a community. So I brought them here. Each and every one of you has the ability to do that, to bring people to the kingdom. I'm not against programs. They're great. But I really do, deep in my heart, believe there's something about your life spilling over into your friends and your family that brings people to the kingdom. They see you. They may not pick up a Bible to read, but they'll read you by your actions, by how you respond when things happen. They're like, sister over there, she, she should have slapped that dude and she should have cursed him out. And instead, she responded with grace and that's really something. Why is she like that? Why is she different? Why is she different? He had an opportunity to, 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 to steal and get something or they did him wrong at work and yet he's so gracious about it. Why, why is that? Then they'll get up bold enough to say, why are you like that? Why? And you get the answer. And you get to say, well, I'd like to introduce you to Yeshua, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who brings the new covenant, the one to shed his blood to make you righteous and holy, the one that will give you a new heart and a new spirit, the one who will write his Torah on your heart and mind, the one who will be your God and you will be his people, the one that says he will forgive you of your transgressions, the one who says you all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You can have an intimate relationship with the living God. Thank you, Lord. We thank you.